Well, we are here on Good Friday to draw attention to Christ. And for that, we are going to turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. Not the Epistle of John, but the Gospel of John. So you just erase that one on the slide there, that first one. Um, it's a, if you don't have your, a Bible, we've got Bibles provided for you in the pew rack directly in front of you. You can find that passage on page 1058. Page 1058, John chapter 1. Now the Apostle John, unlike some writers of the New Testament, actually told us why he wrote this book. And he says at the very end of the book, he says, These are written, meaning these words in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This was the reason he wrote, was so that people would read about Jesus, they would know, come to know Him, and have life in His name. And so, with his focus on Jesus Christ, we can see why he begins the book the way he begins it. The first few verses are, uh, of the book of John are familiar, no doubt, to many of you. And he starts out with the Jesus Christ even before the beginning of time. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word is Jesus Christ, and he is, he is unified with God, and yet he is a different person from God the Father. But this Word didn't remain in heaven forever with God. Verse 14 John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word came to earth and took on bodily form. And John says that we who were here were among Him. We beheld His glory. This Word, this Son of God came to reveal the Father to all of humanity. Verse 18, John goes on saying that no one has ever seen God, but the only God, being Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. So John begins here by saying this Word who was the Son who existed before all eternity has come and has has taken on human flesh and is here to reveal the Father to the world. Well, it's in then in verse 19 that John the writer begins to describe Christ's earthly ministry. And so he begins in verses 19 through 28 describing a scene where there are priests and Levites that come from Jerusalem to ask John who he is. Who are you, John the Baptist? Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? And he denies all of those. And he says in verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he he who comes after me, the scrap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He identifies that there is one who is there that he is pointing to. His ministry is there to point to this one who is coming. And that brings us to our verse here this evening that we are going to meditate upon in 
John chapter 1, verse 29. And it's here in this verse that we are going to see four truths in order to help us behold Christ this evening. So let's read verse 29. John chapter 1, 29. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Four truths from this verse. And we're going to work backwards through the verse as we see these truths. And so the first truth that we need to see tonight is our sin. We need to see our sin. The verse ends on the note of the sin of the world. And so here, John the Baptist, in his declaration, as he sees the Messiah walking towards him, declares that the sin of the world is the world's problem. Notice he doesn't say sins, plural, but he says sin, singular, representing the totality of the world's sin. He's talking about the sin of the world in a collective way. The world here referring to all people without distinction. Not just the sins of the Jews, but the sins of all the nations across all of time. All people who have walked this planet. And therefore, by implication, John is speaking of our sin. As he says the sin of the world, he's speaking about our sin. Our sin fits within this description. Now, many today would say that they don't have any sin. Or they would say that Uh, They don't believe that there's such thing as sin. Or even still, they may not even know what sin is. You tell them that they have sin and they go, what are you talking about? Well, sin in the scriptures is described in a few different ways. First, it's described in a directional way. In terms of uh, missing the mark or uh, stepping off the path or straying away from a given direction. This idea that uh, it's, it misses the mark, it mix, misses what you're trying to hit. There's a path you're supposed to stay on, and you're stepping off of that path. It also describes sin in a relational way. That our sin is rebellion against God. It's betrayal of God. It's being willingly obstinate against what God has spoken and the way what God has done for us. But it also speaks about it in legal terms, that we've broken the law. There is God's law that is there for all of humanity to obey, and we have broken that law. We have not met the standards that he has placed before us. And so we could, we could simply define sin in this way. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will in attitude, in thought, or in action. And this could be both intentional or unintentional, But the reality is, is any time that we fail to align our thoughts, our actions, and our words with God's will, we have sinned. And this sin of the world, this evil, is not hard to see. We come come face to face with it every day, do we not? We see it as soon as you turn on the news, or as soon as you open that news app. We see evil being perpetrated all around the world. We see wicked regimes and abuses of power. We see greed and consumerism destroying people. We see sin in the exploitation of the weak. We see 
sin and the thousands of children that are killed every day because of abortion. We see sin in the fights in our own homes. We see sin in the lusts of our own hearts. We see sin every day. This sin of the world is not hard to pick out. Friends, it is very clear. God makes it very clear in His Word that we all have sinned and that we all stand under His wrath because of this sin. Romans 3.23, a common verse, but very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there is not. Now these verses are just a sampling of what the Scriptures have to say about the sin that we all are in. But the reality is these verses pin us down. We can't squirm away from them. We land in the all. We fall outside of the no one is righteous. We are all guilty. So sinner, I look to you and call you to look upon your own sin tonight. That as this verse talks about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's talking about your sin. Not someone else's sin. Not your friend's sin, but your sin. You stand in your own righteousness, but not in white, clean robes. You stand in a filthy garment. Your sins have risen above your heads, and your guilt is as high as the heavens, as the Scriptures say. And you might say, oh, I've cleaned up my life. I strayed for a while, but I'm getting back on track. I'm trying real hard. I'm sorry, but that's like a child who goes romping through the mud. And mom says to get cleaned up, and so he begins to try to wipe off the mud. Yeah, sure, he'll get some, maybe get some chunks off and look a little better. But the reality is, is that the mud is not going anywhere. He needs an outside substance to help clean off the mud. When we try to clean ourselves up, we are still sinners. We cannot get rid of the stain of sin. It is deep upon our souls. Friends, God's law of right and wrong has been placed upon each one of our consciences. And you know that you've transgressed that law. You have done wrong. You have sinned. We owe Him every breath and every heartbeat, and yet we often fail to give Him thanks as our Creator. This is what every person is guilty of. You may feel right now that you are in the sunshine of the good things of life. But if you have not repented of your sins and trusted Christ, the dark cloud of God's wrath hangs over you. The sin of the world is in your own heart. And so the great message of grace through Jesus Christ that we are meditating upon tonight must begin with the great tragedy of sin that's in each one of our hearts. We must see this. We must see the darkness of the sin of the world before we see anything else. So the darkness of Good Friday is because of 
the sin that put Christ upon the cross. And so the first truth we need to see in this verse tonight is our sin. But that leads us to the second truth, and that is our forgiveness. The second truth that we desperately need to see is our forgiveness. Again, working backwards in the verse, he talks about the sin of the world, but he says that that sin is taken away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here we are introduced to the hope that is offered to our sinful souls. The souls that are stained with our sin and with our evil, there is hope. There's a solution for our problem. There's healing for our sickness. There is forgiveness for our transgression. And notice, our sin is not merely covered over, as if a sheet was just brought over this pile of ugliness. Our sins are not just crossed out. Our sins are not merely just forgotten, nor are they overlooked or ignored. God doesn't say, oh, never mind, I won't, I won't think about those again. Our sin is taken away. It's actually dealt with. It's not partially taken away. It's completely removed. Micah chapter 7 verse 19 says that our sins are trampled underfoot, under God's foot, and that our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. A beautiful illustration that God is, is completely taking care of our sin. Isaiah 38 verse 17 has another metaphor. It says that God casts our sins behind his back. That reality that he is done with them and he's not going to look on them anymore. Psalm 103 verse 12 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The east and west never touch. And therefore, when he takes away our sin, our sin is completely taken away. Never to be placed on us again. Never to be accredited to us. Sinner, you are not left without recourse tonight. You are in your own sin. Yes, you are a condemned criminal on death row. But these words give us hope. That we're not stuck there. We need not despair. Our guilt can be removed. That constant prompting of our consciences, knowing that we have transgressed God's law, that guilt that hangs upon us can be dealt with once and for all. And this is exactly why Jesus Christ came to earth. This is why Jesus Christ came to earth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says very clearly, you know that he, being Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. Why did Jesus show up? He came in order to take away sins. This was his mission. And so the only way for you and I to be able to have our sins taken away far from us, the only way for our guilt to be removed is for us to look upon Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other refuge for us as sinners but in Christ. Acts chapter 10 verse 43 says 
to him, being Jesus of Nazareth, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Forgiveness comes through Christ. Belief in him. Friends, there's no other way for you to be cleansed of your sin, for your guilt to be removed, for the record of debt to be done away with, but through Christ. Now, many like to think that if uh, they merely let some time pass since they've committed their sin, that everything will be better, right? We kind of try this in our relationships, even interpersonally. We get in a squabble and a fight and we think, ah, just let some time go by and everything will just kind of be better. But the relationship's never resolved and never repaired. The same is true with God. We think, oh, we'll kind of let some time pass. C.S. Lewis aptly says, mere time does nothing to either the fact or the guilt of sin. Because you see, You let minutes and hours and years go by and time doesn't touch your heart. Time doesn't change the past. And God can see your heart and he hasn't forgotten your past. And so reconciliation needs to happen with God. And therefore, just waiting longer is not going to heal that wound. We must turn to Christ. And that is where forgiveness is found. But why Jesus Christ? Why is he the refuge for sinners? That leads us to our third truth tonight. Our third truth is our substitute. We've seen our sin. We've seen our forgiveness. Now we're going to look at our substitute. John, the Baptist, looking at Jesus coming towards him, gives Jesus, the title, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this title, we see the reason why Jesus is the only refuge for sinners. Why He is the only hope for us who are condemned under God's wrath. It's because He's the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb belonging to God coming from God, yea, the the Lamb who is being God Himself. Now this title is only precisely used here and later in this chapter in verse 36. But the concept of Jesus being identified as a Lamb is seen in other parts of Scripture as well. We go to Revelation, we don't have time to go there tonight, but we see the throne room of heaven and we see the Lamb who was slain. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul also mentions Christ as our Lamb. And 1 Peter 1 talks about Jesus' blood being without spot or blemish as a Lamb. Now this image of the Lamb was meant to say something to John's audience. It was meant to draw their minds back. It was meant to flood their mind with memories and connections. And it's, it's supposed to do that for us as well. And particularly those memories, those connections are to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now why is that? Well, it's because sacrificial animals were used all throughout the Old Testament as substitutes for sinners. 
as substitutes for sinners. Let me remind you of Genesis 22, where God commands Abraham to take his only son Isaac and to go sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys, takes him there to Mount Moriah, takes him all the way up to the top of the mountain. And there, as Abraham has his knife raised, God stops him and tells him that he can put the knife down because he's provided a ram in the thicket to take the place of his son Isaac. And so there we see this great substitution of an animal for God's people. But we see it clearly in Exodus 12 where God institutes the Passover. And in fact, I'd like you to turn there. Turn back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 12. Just to set the context, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. God has listened to their cry for help, and he is systematically delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh and bringing them to himself and making them his own people. He's done this through the plagues. He's brought a series of of massive plagues upon Egypt in order to show his dominance over the gods of Egypt, the so-called gods of Egypt. And right here before the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn, in which the angel of the Lord would come over and he would kill the firstborn of the household unless the sign was seen upon the house. And so the way that God asked for his people to prepare for this in order for them to be saved, for their firstborn to be saved in the midst of this last plague, he gave them some instructions. And it began by them taking a lamb into their home for two weeks as they fed it and raised it, nurtured this lamb as it grew. And then they were to kill the lamb at twilight, the 14th day. And then let's pick up in verse 7. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
So here, we see this clear connection between the lamb who takes the place of the family in Israel. They are to raise up this lamb, kill the lamb, and spread the blood on the doorpost. And as the angel of the Lord passes over that house, he sees the blood and goes on. And that family is saved, not to receive the judgment that God was bringing that night. And this became, God instituted this as a yearly festival, a yearly feast that Israel would celebrate every year in order to remember. That night when they were set free from the land of Egypt in which a lamb took their place and their family was saved. And so the Passover provides no doubt a huge precursor in the minds of John's hearers as he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can add into this the whole Levitical system of sacrifices, right? There were daily sacrifices and yearly sacrifices of the Day of Atonement that needed to be, uh, take place in order for the nation of Israel to have their sins forgiven. And this too plays into all that's in the Jewish mind as they hear John say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I think there's something more. None of these lambs have been called the Lamb of God. There's something unique about this one. In fact, this is a person who's called a lamb. Everything we've looked at already has been animals called lambs. Pretty clear. Here, John is talking about a man called a lamb who's going to be function like a sacrificial animal. I believe John knew that the Messiah was going to be the one that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 53. In fact, let's turn there. We read a few verses of that earlier, but Isaiah chapter 53. I believe this is where the connection between the sacrificial lambs and the offerings that we've seen so far and a person come together. And a person functions in the place of those animals. Let's start again in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Because he was, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the substitution language that's there? He says he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. He's standing in the place of this people. These ones who have these afflictions, these ones who have these transgressions. And then he ends verse 6 by saying that all of our iniquities placed upon him. But he goes on, verse 7, to describe this one as a lamb. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here Isaiah equates this one who's going to stand in the place and take the punishment for the sin of the people is like a lamb. Like one who goes to the slaughter quietly. This whole chapter through the end has this substitution language in which this one is treated like a sacrificial animal. He's slaughtered for the sin of his people. And the writers of the New Testament very clearly saw that this was speaking of Jesus Christ. That he was the one who fulfilled this. He's the one that filled this role. And it's in Jesus' sacrifice, fulfilling the role of Isaiah 53, that he fulfilled all of the other sacrifices that we see throughout the Old Testament. All of those animal sacrifices that were being made looked forward. They foreshadowed a greater sacrifice that was to come. And the author of Hebrews makes this very clear. Let's turn there to Hebrews chapter 10. We first begin with the reality that all of those animal sacrifices did not deal with sin completely. Believing Israel was commanded to offer these sacrifices. And they did that in obedience and they could walk away from that sacrifice trusting that God would forgive them of their sins. That is how God had set it up there in the Old Testament. They did it full of faith, believing that God would forgive them. But in the eyes of God, a blood of an animal isn't going to completely deal with sin. And so in Isaiah, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, he simply says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Makes it clear, you cannot sacrifice animals and have sin completely taken away. And this is why Christ's sacrifice was so significant. It was a better sacrifice. Go back to chapter 9, just a chapter before Verse 11. And look at this interplay. He's going to do a big contrast between the blood of animals and the blood of Christ. And it says, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The sacrifice of Jesus was so much more superior than all of the sacrifices that were done throughout Old Testament Israel. They superseded those 
sacrifices. It fulfilled all of those sacrifices. Those were all done in faith of the ultimate sacrifice that could ultimately take away their sin. And so we see clearly that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the one who was placed upon God's altar and was slain there upon the altar for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. We deserve to be on that altar and experience the wrath of God upon our heads. But instead, God placed his own son, the Lamb of God, for his blood to be spilled rather than yours and rather than mine. Jesus is the great Lamb of God. This sacrifice took place at a historical time and place in 33 AD outside of Jerusalem upon a Roman cross. And it was there that the wrath of God was satisfied for sinners. So what do we do with this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, that leads us to our fourth truth this evening. And that is our response. We've seen our sin, our forgiveness, our substitute. And now, lastly, our response. And I simply, back in John 1... He begins, the, he begins his statement with, behold. Behold. The word behold is an attention-grabbing word. It's meant to get everyone's attention to see what exactly he's talking about. It's like a, a loud clap right at the beginning of his statement, and everyone snaps up and looks and says, okay, what are you talking about? He says, behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist wanted everyone around him to see exactly who he was talking about. He wanted everyone to see this great Lamb of God. He wanted everyone to look and to pay careful attention. You've come to ask me who I am. You're wondering if I'm the Christ. I'm not he, but behold, the one who's walking towards me. That is the Lamb of God who will take away your sin. And friends, this is exactly what we must do tonight. We must behold, we must look, we must cast our gaze upon the Lamb of God. We cannot let our gaze go anywhere else. It must be fixed upon our Savior completely. We cannot let the distractions of this world cause us to look to other things for our joy, for our satisfaction, for our salvation. For it is only found in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. There is no other Savior. There is no other substitute. There is no other hope. There is no other refuge but in Jesus Christ. And so we must hear the words of John the Baptist tonight to behold, to look, to cast our gaze, and to lock in on Jesus Christ. I ask you, Is your gaze fixed on Christ tonight? Has your gaze been fixed on Christ? Has 2017 been a year so far in which you have been beholding and gazing upon Christ? Maybe you've been distracted. Maybe there's other things that have gotten the gaze of your heart. Friends, let us hear the declaration of John the Baptist tonight to set our eyes on no one else but upon Christ. 
May your love, our love be completely for him. Now, this is, this is not just knowing about Jesus. This is not just knowing that he's the substitute and knowing that he died on the cross. Many people have a knowledge about Christ, but it's only a head knowledge. It's not a heart knowledge. It hasn't transformed them. But Paul makes it clear that when we behold the glory of the Lord, it transforms us from one glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3. We can't look upon this Lamb of God and not be changed to see that it was our sin that drove those nails into him. That it was our sin that condemned him. That it was us that deserved to, to receive the wrath of God that was poured out. When we truly see that, we are truly changed. Do you not just know about Christ, but do you believe in him? Are you trusting him completely? Is your faith resting in him? John chapter 3, verse 36 says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, this is the warning of God and the gospel of God given to you tonight. That if you do not repent and turn from your sin, that the wrath of God remains upon you. There is nothing you can do to get out from it. You can try to run as far as you can, but you cannot outrun, you cannot get out from underneath the wrath of God. Again, he knows your heart. He knows your sin. And nothing else is taking it away. And as long as it remains there, when you die and stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will be held accountable for that sin. But here also we see the wonderful good news of life offered to you. Come ye sinner, poor and weary. Don't hold back. The only fitness, the only thing that you need is need. And that's exactly what you have. So take your need and run to Christ. Flee to him. Do not wait. Today is the day of salvation. Look upon and behold the crucified Savior for you. This is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin if you believe it. It's got to be appropriated by faith. You can't say, oh great, that Lamb of God, he did that thing so I can kind of go live my life however I want. He took care of it. That's great. I got my passport stamped. I'll just pull that out when I need it. No, see, he demands our lives and our all. He says, any who come to me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We must give ourselves completely to him. He is Lord. We are not. And so it is through his death that we have life. Christian, maybe you're here tonight and you have sensed the wane, your waning love for Christ. I just invite you to look upon Jesus afresh tonight. This weekend in which we can focus on the greatness of Christ and the gospel. 
don't waste it. Don't waste it. Meditate upon it. Look upon Christ in his word. Don't let your vision be clouded by the cares of this world. He knows those. Don't let your attention be distracted from him by temptations and other things. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that as we're running the race, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, to lock in and to not get him out of our sight. And so this is the calling upon us tonight to behold the Lamb of God, to look afresh at Christ, to worship Him, be in awe of Him, submit ourselves to Him, and to live in the life that He has provided for us by His death. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for this declaration from John the Baptist recorded for us by the Apostle John in which he says to his audience there that even echoes down through the 2,000 years of time to look upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I pray, Father, that each one of us here would look upon Christ tonight, would trust Him as the only Savior of our souls, and that we might grow in our love of him with each passing day. It's in his name we pray, amen.